Hello there. What's this? The beginning of season two of Asking For It, the podcast that reclaims and reframes to find out what people are actually asking for? Absolutely not. It's not. My name is Amy and I am the host of that podcast. I'm also the person who's done nothing about organizing any guests for the second series. But I do have for you this very special bonus episode. I've been a bit busy lately. There's been a lot going on and it's been really a very wonderful time uh, in my life. And so (laughs) I haven't had time (laughs) to make podcasts. And as I said, I was taking a little break at the end of the last season and season two will come back in 2019, that I promise you. But one of the things I've been busy doing was I was asked to speak at a leadership conference uh, a few weeks ago in November because this is the internet and you can listen to this anytime, so I should be specific. Uh, In November of 2018, I was asked to speak on the topic of the creative economy. Uh, It was a a keynote speech and I was really freaking out about how I was going to fill a full hour talking about the creative economy. And as you will see, I actually really got on a roll and loved thinking about it, writing about it, and then speaking about it and having a very in-depth conversation about where the world is going really and and what we're going to do in the years that we have left on this planet to navigate that. And as I was thinking about it after I did it, I realized that this speech is a lot of things that I am asking for. And so, yes, I've put it up as a podcast. Uh, So this was recorded for archival purposes really. So there's a few kind of loud plosives on that (laughs) popping microphone and there's some you know things that are happening in the room that are specific to the room so you know bear with me on that but have a listen let me know what you think Uh, I spent a lot of time putting this speech together and I was really proud of it and I'm really proud to share it with you today so here we go this is what I well this is one of the many things I'm asking for a lot of things but investment in the creative economy is one of them so here we go Gosh, I don't know who wrote that intro, but clearly they stalked me on social media because they know everything I do all day. Uh, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for having me. I also just want to acknowledge uh, that we're standing on Gadigal land, uh, pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge any First Nations peoples in the room today. So, the creative economy. Here we go. It's a broad subject and when I was first asked to speak today, my initial reaction was, how am I going to fill an hour talking about this? Maybe I'll just do 20 minutes and I'll tell them I'm being creatively economic. But as I started to mull over it and marinate on the topic, which is my creative process, I realised that this is really big and this is something that I could happily dissect and explore and debate because it's one I truly believe of vital importance and in how we navigate the world today and in the future. In fact, the topic is so broad that I want to start with some clarifications. So what do we mean when we say we're talking about the creative economy? I've spent nearly, as you said, 20 years working across a broad spectrum of the arts. I'm very passionate about and grateful for my career in the creative industries. The core arts 
are very important to our society, but their impact is not just what I'm talking about when I say the words creative economy. What I mean is something much more expansive. A creative economy is one of the most exciting opportunities we have as a nation and as a global community. It is everything from the core creative arts to business industry, architecture, coding, design, media, journalism, advertising. But it also embraces the creative practices across all industries. How do we create new and evolved business models? How do we tackle climate change? How do we build relationships and partner across industry? And how do we put people first at a time when human connection, empathy and diversity are at their utmost importance? And it's not just me who thinks this. The United Nations survey recently pointed out that the rapid rate of growth of the global creative economy was being felt on every single continent. The report concluded that the interface between creativity, culture, economics and technology, as in the ability to create and circulate intellectual capital, has the potential to generate income, jobs and exports, while at the same time promoting social inclusion, cultural diversity and human development. This is what the creative economy has begun to do and this is what Australia must invest in if we want to keep up with our global neighbours. We are in the midst of a reshaping of the overall platform of cultural production and consumption. At a glance at, <laughs> a glance at the news will tell you that there is a clear need for us to better grasp the complex interactions between the economic, cultural, technological and social aspects currently guiding the dynamics of the way people live in the 21st century. In this era of rapid transformation, creativity, knowledge and connection are crucial in remaining relevant and competitive, regardless of your industry. Embracing creativity at the heart of your business essentially is future-proofing your business and your own career. Now, I have a Google HomePod in my house, right? I... I'm not going to lie, I love my Google HomePod. I want one in every single room. I am embracing this technology. She talks to me, she tells me about my day, she tells me the weather, she reads recipes, plays music. She's the best. She's basically a PA that I don't have to pay. But I also realise that this little Google HomePod is in some ways a canary in the coal mine. This lovely voice that tells me there is light traffic on your way to work, she is a harbinger of reimagined economic order providing an entirely new way in which businesses are organised, education is provided, and the working lives and career prospects of millions of people is about to develop. So let's take a look at the longer arc of this. The second industrial revolution took 86 years. The third took 99. And during it, we saw two world wars and a huge global upheaval. The fourth, we are in the midst of it. The internet, as we know it, was launched in 1990. That was nearly 30 years ago. The iPhone landed in 2007. I am a member of the last generation that remembers a time before either of these things existed. And they have changed the world as we know it. You think you get frustrated now about the amount of times you have to update your Apple iTunes software? I wager that pales in comparison with what is about to happen. But the thing is, none of us know what's going to happen. None of us know how any of this is going to play out. And that's why if we want to build successful careers and businesses and industries and economics and communities for the future, we need to shift our perception of the value of creativity and place it in the centre of our societies. And we need to do it now. Researchers at Oxford estimate, as you said, up to 47% of jobs could be replaced by machines in the next 20 years. 
For many of us, hi. That's all right, darling. For many of us, thank you. That 20 years is still within our working professional lifetimes. But a study by Nesta argued the creative sector was to some extent immune to this threat. I'll shut my parents up about working in the arts all the time. But with 87% of highly creative jobs having zero or low risk of being displaced by automation. Where oil was the primary fuel of the 20th century, creativity is the fuel of the 21st. In the same way our energy policy was a determinant of geopolitics of the 20th century, policies to promote and protect creativity will be the crucial determinants of success in the 21st. Now, I'm sure some of you would have seen this news a few weeks ago. The UN is reporting that we've got 12 years to limit the effects of climate change. 12 years. That is nothing. I have a coat that's older than 12 years. It's going to take an unprecedented amount of nuance, diplomacy, soft power and new ideas to see the human race ending up living anywhere other than the dystopian world of Mad Max. Okay, this might be a bit doomsday, but if this happens, I would please like a flaming guitar. I jest, but all of the necessary skills for negotiating the future, they have one thing in common. They are rooted in creativity. We need to rethink the way that governments are organised, the way cities are planned, the way education is delivered and the way businesses interact with their communities. Where we put our attention, that's where the future is. It's alarmingly simple. Where the money and the time is, so too is the growth. Thinking about and investing in a creative economy could not be more important. In fact, it is vital for our national agenda. Currently in Australia, we are a siloed nation. We are a nation built on outdated STEM educational systems and limited natural resources. For decades now, we have rested on our laurels, our beautiful environment, drawing billions of tourists and supplying valuable but finite resources. We were the lucky country. And then we were the clever country. And despite the best efforts of our most recent former Prime Minister, because you do need to be specific, uh, to make us the innovation nation, Australia is ranked 23rd in the world when it comes to innovation. That is our worst ranking in 18 years. If this was a cricket team, we would be up in arms. And the problem is far greater than an argument about whether the fibre needs to go to the curb or to the node. Sydney too, we've rested on our laurels. Yes, our city has become a consolidated place in the top global contenders of London and Paris and Hong Kong, but the Committee for Sydney reports that since just 2017, there has been a significant decline in our measures of soft power, which reflect our status as a centre of influence and diplomacy. We remain behind other cities like Amsterdam and Shanghai. These cities suggest that Sydney's identity as a city, it's compelling, but it's incomplete. We do not have a clear cultural and business story that we are currently sharing with the world in an effective manner. We are benched behind the evolving global measures of success because currently we're seeing a global trend of changing the way that cities are benchmarked. Look at how we measured ourselves just five years ago versus today. Even the nuance in those changes, let alone the list itself, shows that for us to remain relevant, we've got to better harness our human assets and our soft power. Creativity does just that. Australia needs a course correction, a shift from the industrial economy to an ideas-based one. Everyone in this room knows intellectual property is a major global currency that we're not sufficiently investing in or fostering. 
A city is a living organism and creativity and culture is the oxygen that it breathes. It simply no longer makes sense for people, businesses, governments and nations to focus on economic value in isolation from their social and cultural value. So, what do we do? I've got a bit doomsday. I showed you pictures of Mad Max. How do we do, how do, we do something to not only value creativity as a major power, but entrench it in our heart of a nation's economy? Well, we're going to start at the beginning. Early childhood learning and education. Now, I'm going to show my hand here and admit my bias, as it was mentioned before, before working at the Sydney Festival, around the Australian Theatre for Young People. I have a vested, a vested interest in the power of young people's creativity. But I've also seen firsthand to the underfunding, under-resourcing and undervaluing of our teachers, the current school system is educating people out of their creative capacities. So one of the most popular TED Talks of all time is called Do school Schools Kill Students' Creativity? And in it, Ken Robinson surmises that creativity is now as important in education as literacy and we should treat it with the same status. But almost every education system on earth has the same hierarchy of subjects. At the top are maths, science and languages, all very important. Then the humanities and at the bottom are the creative studies. As children grow, our current system educates them progressively from the waist up. And then we just kind of focus on their heads and then just one side of their head, the left. Our education system is predicated on the idea of academic ability, which has really come to dominate our view of what intelligence is. And as a consequence, many highly talented, brilliant, creative people think that they are not smart because they were told the thing they were good at at school wasn't valued or was in some cases stigmatised. And we simply can't afford to continue this way. Intelligence is classically defined as the ability to acquire and utilise knowledge. Creativity is the ability to come up with new ideas through a mental process of connecting existing concepts. Intelligence only gets you so far without creativity. The left brain can only go so far without the right. And for too long our education systems, and as a result our society, we've been out of balance. And when things get out of balance, well, that's when things can become toxic. Toxic. It's a word we hear a lot these days. In fact, toxic is 2018's word of the year. Toxic! Is this the state of our world? In 2015, it was the face with tears emoji. How do we go from face with tears emoji to toxic in three short years? Well, the fact that the 2016's word of the year was uh, post-truth might give us some idea. Oxford said they chose the word toxic because there has been a 45% rise in searches of the term in 2018 alone. And the truth is, anything can become toxic if you have too much of it. We hear a lot of talk about toxic masculinity, but not all forms of masculinity are bad. It's just too much of one kind. You have toxic workplaces when the leadership is out of whack. There are toxic environments and toxic relationships. Even water can be toxic when you have too much of it. It's called drowning. And too much left brain focused education is toxic to our culture because it kills our creativity. In 2017, I commissioned a study to measure the benefits of the Australian Theatre for Young People's creative learning on Australians, the results were astounding. Participation in creative programs 
had a positive impact on the well-being of 94% of youth involved. They helped 71% build resilience to cope with challenges, 52% reduced their anxiety levels, 89% reported improved self-confidence, 88% improved teamwork, and 84% interpersonal skills as a result of their involvement in creative programs. And it's not just me blowing my own horn, it's also across the world. In the UK, participation in structured arts activities has been proven to increase cognitive abilities by 17%. One third of young people in the youth justice system who completed a summer arts college training program moved up a whole level in literacy and numeracy. Hong Kong research shows that particular improvements in creativity and communication through studying the visual arts. German research has shown a relationship between music and educational attainment. Employability of students who study art subjects is higher and they are more likely to stay in employment. Students who engage in the arts at school are twice as likely to volunteer and 20% more likely to vote as young adults. Now I know, in Australia, it's compulsory. We all have our constitutional right to a democracy sausage. But we all know too well the effects of low voter turnout in other countries on our global community at the moment. STEM. Left brain education and under-resourcing of schools and teachers is a one-way ticket to national irrelevance. And the sooner we shift our thinking, the better. Which moves me to our next area of influence. Hello, friends. Government. Australia is looking for a leader who truly champions the value of creativity. We're also looking for a leader who can last one term. But leaders with vision and actual policy around how we can recalibrate and adapt to future-proof the next generations of Australia, they are the ones who stand a chance of creating a lasting positive impact on our nation. We are a nation of incredibly creative people. We invented Wi-Fi, the black box recorder, the electronic pacemaker, Google Maps, polymer banknotes, the bionic ear, cervical cancer vaccine, and of course, the most important invention, the hill's hoist. But our most creative, come on, who hasn't done that? Our most creative minds are too often forced to leave Australia, or they're headhunted, to work in other countries where creativity is more highly valued. We over-index in Hollywood, and while we love to celebrate our Nicole and our Hugh, the truth is, is that the ABS is reporting a rising trend in top talent leaving the country in search of better business and career opportunities. Increasing 5% year on year, top professionals are moving to Singapore, Hong Kong, Silicon Valley, and most embarrassingly, New Zealand. They're going to New Zealand. I love New Zealand. I have, I, my uncle lives there. We need people in Australia who can create new solutions to increasingly complex and nuanced problems. The thinking shapes our cultural identity, who we are on a global platform, and prepares us to thrive in an increasingly diverse and complex society. UNESCO notes that the creative economy has the greatest social impact. It is a driver not only of the economic market, but of inclusiveness and diversity of culture. Creativity is not a soft word. It is an absolute powerhouse that is intrinsically tied to our economic growth and it must come back into focus so that Australia can effectively use it as a key driver of our next big boom. But I get it. Government and education systems, they are vast and impenetrable structures of power that are very slow to change. So what can we do in our own work, in our own backyard to embrace and prioritise a creative refocus? Well, happily I have some slides and suggestions for you. Little Miss Busy. The curse of efficiency 
and the cult of busy. There were times when a person's wealth was measured by their spare time. Extravagant trips, expensive pursuits, exclusive hobbies, they all require time. I'm sure everybody in this room knows you need a good consecutive six weeks to sail your personal yacht to the Cayman Islands. <laughs> but today, the most successful people are perceived as the busiest. In a recent paper from Columbia, Harvard and Georgetown, they all found through a series of experiments that the busier a person appeared, the more important they were deemed. Blows my mind. The busier a person appeared, the more important they were deemed. And so now, we are all so busy. And we're so busy talking about how busy we are. And coupled with that, the curse of efficiency is actually starting to hurt us. We're becoming so good at finding efficiencies in our lives that we rob ourselves of the ability to engage in slow, thorough thinking. The type of thinking where you can challenge assumptions and ideas and invite multiple diverse perspectives. The type of thinking where creativity thrives. Most organisations are cursed with efficiency. We're so busy hustling and posting and sharing that we tend to default to quick fixes, convenient solutions and familiar plans and we fall into a trap of doing little that's new. Look at the conventional business narrative. You know, you see this recent trend of kind of Instagram quote style leadership. You know, fail fast and move on, grow fast and disrupt, and kick the thing over and hustle, hustle, hustle. You know, we see leaders jumping on it with great enthusiasm. I've seen my friends do it, I've done it. But if you dig a little deeper, you will see that that strategy is incrementalism and bandwagonism. People look at what they did last year we all bump up the targets and then we pull it together with some zeitgeisty buzzwords. Oh, come on, we've all done it. Leaders need to embrace that making space for creativity means you're making space to slow down. A good idea or a new insight is not a spontaneous moment. It is the result of a range of cognitive processes and strategies that are separate to traditional intelligence. It takes time for people to develop ideas, to mature, to experiment and to fail. Creativity, it's a natural human activity, but in the context of business, it needs to be planned and managed. Yet, the majority of companies, we are at a loss as to how to do this. The Harvard Review reports that more than 50% of CEOs say they are only moderately successful at planning and managing creativity, and 40% say that they are not good at all. That is 90% of businesses saying that they're a bit rubbish at creativity. And it's not surprising because managing creativity is actually really hard. Because creativity, it's not linear, is it? It's not predictable. It won't sit neatly on a timeline with an incremental KPI. Making space for creativity that in the workplace necessitates the need to embrace our EQ as much with as much veracity as we do our IQ. We need to normalise human emotion vulnerability in the workplace. Why? Because you can't get creative without getting vulnerable. Now when I say the word vulnerable, what I mean is, is that it's crucially important that we acknowledge that creating something new carries an element of risk. But the bulk of us work in an environment where we're trying to avoid those exact things. We spend our working lives trying not to be exposed, trying not to be caught out. And this creates an environment where embarrassment or vulnerability, no matter how small, it inhibits our creativity. 
We don't always realise how much our egos affect us and fear of being wrong or judged or failing. It might not be at the forefront of our minds, but a lot of the time, these worries, no matter how small, they sabotage us at a foundational level. So despite all the brainstorming and butcher's paper and goodwill in the world, unless your teams are feeling secure, valued and listened to, they won't try something new and they'll just keep playing it safe. And by playing it safe, we play it the same. If we want to fight the proliferation of mediocrity, then we need to let ourselves sit in the discomfort of experimentation. The more you fight vulnerability, the more you fight new and creative ideas from being able to come through. All right, next suggestion. Diversity. To unlock maximum creativity, guys, we've got to harness our cognitive diversity. Essentially, if you sit in a seat of power, and most people in here do, and you look around the table and everybody looks like you and everybody has had the same lived experience as you, oh, please invite more people to dinner. The 2016 census reported that more than a quarter of the Australian population was born overseas. Just under half of ch were children of overseas-born parents, includes me. Almost a fifth identifies people living with a disability. A third live outside our major cities. Just one in ten identifies having a non-straight sexual sexuality or gender identity. Our streets and communities reflect this lived experience of everyday diversity, but our boardrooms, executives and leadership teams do not. And we all know it. Cultivating a diverse workforce should be one of your biggest priorities. People often misunderstand and underestimate the power that it can bring to your business. Diversity is proactive and transformational because multiple and varied voices that have a wide range of experience, they generate new ideas. And it isn't just about race or gender. This is about age, values, religion, political stance, economic background. Cultural diversity works through the economy to benefit Australian society across tourism, education, as well as community vibrancy, resilience and adaptability. Remember those city benchmarks that we looked at before? This addresses just that. A truly diverse workforce cultivates creativity because by coming together we deliver new ideas and new ways of thinking. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try something risky now. I'm gonna try an interactive part of the speech. I look at you all, you're like, don't make me do this. It's okay, we've been sitting here a while. Come on, we need to warm up. It's really easy. We're all gonna do it together. You don't even have to stand up. I'm gonna put some words on the screen and we're gonna shout them out together, okay? But we're gonna do it loud, like we need to get loud with this. So I'm gonna do a practice. I'm gonna do the first word and it comes up, we're gonna shout it. Here we go. That was not bad, actually. I was waiting for that to be terrible, so thank you for proving me wrong. Okay, we're gonna do it again. Ready, one, two, three. Stop. Okay, now I'm gonna show you the words. That was good, Nicole. You came late, but now you've, you've, you've made it better. It's good, good. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go really, really fast, and we're gonna read them all out together. Here we go, ready? And stop feeling weird about quotas. Oh, it's not on the screen. <laughs> Now my whole script's gone off paste. All right. That's the wrong advice. <laughs> it's a conspiracy. Quotas. I have put, I did put it up on the screen intentionally because it is a divisive and it's a controversial word and it is a word that makes people feel uncomfortable. And that's okay because I wanted us to feel a little bit uncomfortable today because I wanted us to get used to feeling uncomfortable because feeling uncomfortable helps us be creative in our workplaces. It's okay to feel weird about quotas. I used to as well, because I really believed, and still do, 
that the best person should always get the job. But that was at a time when I believed that the best person always did get the job and that we lived in a meritocracy. But the confronting reality is that we don't. The best person doesn't always get the job for a myriad of reasons. It could be that their CV wasn't laid out in a traditional Western business way. It could be that their name was spelt a bit funny and that the fact that every single one of us, including me, has some kind of unconscious bias means that that resume went to the bottom of the pile. Or it could be that the person didn't even see the job advert because we were advertising to the kind of person who did it last time. In 2017, a study was published in the Harvard Review that assessed teams based on diversity of thinking styles. And it showed that the teams with the greatest amount of cognitive diversity consistently outperformed the more homogenous groups. Quotas feel weird to begin with, but where our attention goes, so too does our success. Let me give you an example. In 2015, Screen New South Wales introduced a target to achieve an average 50-50 gender equity in its development and production funding programs by 2020. At the time, women accounted for 30% of directors receiving funding and it was even lower when you looked at producers and writers. By setting a quota, they reached their target early. And this year, women represent 45% of directors, 62% of producers and 50% of writers. Screen New South Wales, now called Create New South Wales, looked at the problem and used a huge lever of power to affect change. Money. Projects that did not have enough women on board were simply not funded. Or they were told to go back and find a qualified woman to be attached to the project so the project would get up. When pressed to do so, creative teams found the right candidates. They just had to look a little bit harder in a different place. It increased collaboration, networks, and now those teams are working together again and again and creating more opportunity for an even more diverse range of people as they come up the ranks. Courage and creativity are contagious and they come with exponential benefits. Now, I spoke to them and the team at Create are happy for me to share in this room that the program didn't come without some level of fear and nerves. There were multiple conversations about potential backlash. There was crisis comms planned about what to do if 50-50 by 2020 was met with negative reaction. Guess what? Backlash never came. There were some learnings. Yes, there was change management needed. Yes. But across the board, the plan was adopted and successful. So successful, in fact, that it's been adopted in every state and territory and at a federal level. And when I asked some of the other states why they hadn't adopted it earlier, they said that, oh, look, it had been on the table really long time, but we were really scared of the backlash. They felt, New South Wales felt weird about a quota. They got uncomfortable with it. They got vulnerable and they stuck their neck out and they created a national positive change. Okay, so we've taken down the government. We've restructured our educational systems. We've radically diversified our teams and we've slowed down and we've got a bit vulnerable with each other. We've done some massive things this morning. Well done, everybody. You didn't even have to stand up. But not everything has to be so big picture. Creativity and change, when implemented in small, consistent increments, can still have very large and positive effects. We don't all have to be Google to be deemed creative. Although, have you been there? They have nap pods. I work at a festival. I can tell you in January, I'm going to really appreciate a nap pod in the office. Chris, my boss, is here this morning. <laughs> but what I'm meaning is, is that small initiatives can go a long way. For example, take our very own Nicole Webb. Nicole Webb of Impact Agency, look at your face, you're like, what? <laughs> when Nicole's team all started having children at the same time, including herself, Nicole put childcare into her agency. Very, like, big financial decision, but a small thing. 
That meant that her team came back to work sooner, they had a smoother return to work, they, staff retention improved, teams would have felt valued and cared for. The initiative was not only creative in and of itself, but led to a workplace environment that would naturally foster more creativity. It's amazing. Look at Amsterdam. Plagued with a profitable but problematic nighttime economy, they had what they were calling a 4am war zone. But rather than shutting down the heart of the city with lockout laws, they created a dedicated politician of the night. A nightmare. No, not a nightmare. A nightmare. The job is a tricky one. Nurturing a city's expanding nighttime economy, economy while managing residents and public officials who would probably rather it didn't exist. But it's been handled in such a typically Dutch, creative and classy way that it's been a huge success. After two years, there's been more than a 30% decrease in nuisances, 25% drop in alcohol-related incidents, and they've built a 24-7 economic system. It's been so successful that now it's been copied across Europe. And the fun fact is that the role actually holds no governmental power. He's not an actual councillor. He's not an actual mayor. But it's a creative and positive way of driving attention and focus to an area that needed improving. And while we're on international examples, encourage your teams to see the world. If you can make space in the budget, find ways to let them connect and collaborate with different cultures and industries. <coughs> Creativity is related to neuroplasticity. Our neural pathways are influenced by environment and habit. New sounds, smells, languages, tastes, sensations, they all spark different synapses in our brain and they revitalise the mind. Columbia recently re released a report showing that foreign experiences increase cognitive flexibility, which is a key component in creativity. Writers and thinkers have long, long held the creative benefits of international travel. Ennis Termingway drew inspiration from Spain and France. Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strait have built empires off their experiences of travel. And it wasn't until Steve Jobs went on a pilgrimage through India and Japan that he was inspired to create Apple's mantra of simplicity being the ultimate sophistication. I should flag, it's not just about being abroad. The key critical process in this is multicultural engagement, immersion and adaptation. So someone who lives abroad and doesn't engage with local culture will probably not get a creative boost. So basically going to Club Med Bali is not going to make you, you know, a more creative person if you're there for schoolies. And finally, a subject very close to my own heart. Collaborate with creative companies. For too long, businesses have viewed the creative industries as something nice to have, but not an essential collaborator or member of their marketing mix. We are in the age of the ephemeral. So work with companies that are the best in the world at delivering storytelling content and those intangible, beautiful, creative assets that all of our audiences love. There is so much value in companies that companies are simply missing out on when they see an investment in the core arts as nothing more than corporate social responsibility. There's a great piece of research that was released last week from the Australia Council with Tourism Australia that identified some really impressive international tourism results. In 2017, of the 8 million visitors that came to Australia, 43% engaged with the arts, where 6% engaged with sport. That makes me very happy. <laughs> Over the last five years, international arts tourism has grown at a higher rate than overall international tourism. One million international tourists attended festivals and cultural events in 2017. International arts tourists spent $17 billion in 2017. That made up 60% of the overall spend by Australian international tourists. 
It was also reported in 2017 that 98% of Australians engage with the arts. 78% of them believe that art makes an important contribution to our society. 75% know that arts are an important part of education for all Australians. More Australians now than ever believe that the arts shape and express our Australian identity. Australia's cultural companies, they are the thought leaders of our nation. They deliver nuanced, emotive and connected opportunities to reach a really highly valuable audience. I see them every day. It's time for Australia to break out of our siloed industry-specific ways of working and start to play in the world of collaboration and creative partnership. The days of logo slapping on a sports field are coming to an end, if I have anything to do with it. It's the old Einstein adage, there he is. We cannot solve problems with the same thinking that we use to create them. NAPLAN, KPIs, Instagram, they all have their uses, but they aren't everything. And in the same way, our current linear systems are functional, but they limit what's possible. It's, we're in a short-sighted environment in which self-criticism flourishes and therefore creativity languishes. Okay, I'm going to tell you one more story and then I'm going to wrap it up. It's not about you, Nicole. It's not all about you, Nicole. Right now, I mean, unless this is you, Nicole, right now somewhere in West Texas, underground, an artist and an engineer called Danny Hillis is working with a team designing to build a clock. It is a massive underground installation called the Long Clock. It's hundreds of feet tall and it's designed to run for 10,000 years. It's completely sustainable. It runs on sunlight and the energy of the people who visit, and it ticks once a year. The century hand advances once every hundred years. The cuckoo comes out once a millennium. And the clock's chimes have been programmed to not repeat themselves for 10,000 years. <coughs> once it's open, the clock will take a commitment to get there. Its nearest airport is several hours away by car. The foot trail to the clock is rugged. Uh, it's been in development since 1995 and they're not confirming a completion date. <laughs> it will be ready when it's ready. But it's captured the imagination of some of the world's most influential people, including, as you know, problematic as he can be, Amazon's Jeff Bezos, who recently came on board as the project's biggest investor. Now, I can see the faces around the room, that's it. So I can see the faces around the room, you're going, why? Why are you telling us this? Why are you talking about some crazy clock in the middle of the desert? Because the entire reason for this creation is because, and this is a quote from Jeff Bezos, humans are now so technologically advanced that we can create not only extraordinary wonders, but a civilization scale problems. We are going to need creative, long-term thinking to solve them. Now, I am not suggesting that we all quit our jobs and go to the desert to build a giant clock underground, but I do acknowledge that some of the ideas I've talked about may seem, at a first glance, as far-fetched. But back when, in 1995, when Danny first came up with the idea, he said something that has really struck with me. He said, I cannot imagine a future. I cannot imagine the future, but I care about it. And I know I am part of a story that starts long before I can remember and continues long beyond anyone will remember me. I sense that I am alive at a time of important change and I feel a responsibility to make sure that the change comes out well. I plant my acorns knowing I will never live to harvest the oaks. If you take one thing from my talk this morning, it's that I ask you to take some time. Take some time to step back. Get your head 
out of the end of year results and give yourself the gift of time to do some slow thinking about your long clock, about the legacy that has a whole potential to have positive impacts beyond your life, beyond your children's lives. See where it leads you. Explore the options. Try something new. Get creative. It might result in the tiniest incremental change in your world, but that's great. If the least that happens is that all of us embrace a tiny incremental change, well, that could be the flap of a global butterfly effect that puts creativity in the center of our economy and our society. To be creative is to leap into the unknown, but that's okay because now we're all gonna do it together. Thank you very much. That was my keynote. Um, thank you so much for listening all this way. I hope that I've made your commute or your day somewhat more interesting. If there are ideas in this talk that are really resonating or pinging for you, there's a lot of people doing a lot of great work in this space. Obviously, Brene Brown is the probably one of the biggest names talking about vulnerability in the workspace. Uh, James Cass has an incredible book called Finite and Infinite Games, which is not an easy read, but also a very valuable one in terms of thinking of your long clock. Uh, and I do highly recommend you watch the TED talk about um, our schools educating us out of our own creativity. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for supporting the podcast in 2018. It was a little pet project that I wanted to get up and see what happened and the response has been always so wonderful um, and so much so that I will do it again next year. Um, have a wonderful Christmas holiday, New Year season, summertime if you're in Australia, everybody. And we'll see you with season two in 2019.